This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Charlie Webster, and I'm the host of Died and Survived. It's a subject very close to my heart. And most certainly it's been on my mind since my own near-death experience back in August 2016. It was the result of a two-week coma with malaria and other tropical diseases, four actually, that was shutting down my lungs, kidneys and brain. Effectively, it was killing me from within. I've struggled with the threatening imagery presented to me due to a blood-strewn funeral scene where my family, and in particular my mum, were being destroyed by grief as I helplessly watched my own burial. There was like a belligerent black mass forcefully pulling me towards death. A fight I won, but at a dramatic cost. The summer of 2022. The start of new me. My mum knows I love her, but how can you destroy her after everything she's been through? What will happen to her? Do I just go with you? I ask the thing that is standing in front of me. It looks like it's trying to take me away. I don't think it's God. I'm sure if it is you, you wouldn't just kill me off like this. My mum's heartbreak hits me as though it's my own. No, this can't be it. What about my mum? My mum, this is gonna kill her. How can you do this to her? Her heart smashes to pieces. The broken pieces float around me, tormenting my own. You caused this. It's all your fault. No, I didn't. I didn't mean to hurt her. I want to be sick. I'm standing at the back of my funeral. Am I dead? I can't see anybody's faces, just the backs of their heads. I'm a long way off though. It is a brilliant white, so clean and intensely bright. All the people are facing the front. Everyone's there. I can see my mom. She's next to my brothers. My nan and granddad are watching too. But hang on, they're from the corner. Are you alive or dead with me? What's it like being dead? Am I dead? They ignore me. My mum's pain drowns everything out as it pierces the room. Now it's just her screaming on the floor. Her fists are hammering the ground with grief. Shrills explode from her mouth. Her head smashes the pure white stone over and over again. Her blood seeps out and spoils the heavenly white floor. She's cuddling me. I'm her little girl. Her blood, my blood, all over us like some massacre horror movie scene. In the six years since my eventual waking and slow rehabilitation, more physical than psychological, I had to learn how to walk again. I've always danced around the subject. Family, friends trivialize the event, I suppose to soften the aftermath. And detrimentally, I allowed that to keep my true feelings and fears hidden. To protect myself, I suppose, and actually, if I'm honest, others, particularly my closest family. In this episode, I'm going to speak one-on-one with Dr. Dan Holden, who we heard from earlier in the series, from the International Association of Near-Death Studies, to try to finally make sense of it all. 
It might not be closure, but it could be several steps in the right direction. On this journey um, that I've been recording this and speaking to various different people, I kind of said, you know, to my friends and family, oh, I feel like I had an experience and, um, like, I feel like I kind of fought death and went against death, but nobody's ever gone any deeper and, like, we've all just gone, hey, okay, move on. And also it was really centred around, like, my own... You know, I had to relearn how to walk again. Like, I was really in a bad shape. So a lot of it centred around my physical therapy and then mentally... um, you know, I know you've done a, a lot of work around counselling. I did have like post-traumatic stress disorder and worked with a psychologist because, um, you know, I was feeling quite depressed afterwards. So I think that was always the focus. Yeah. And then in my own head, I questioned it all the time, but then I felt weird about it. I'm originally from the north of England. Like we're quite like, come on, suck mm-hmm. it up, stiff up a lip and, mm-hmm. and a little bit like that. I also then worried. Yeah. I didn't want to make people feel bad because I told a friend and they went, oh God, that's made me even more scared now yeah. through this journey. And even speaking to people like yourself, I want to try and make people curious and also with hope and not with negativity. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so uh, I have several thoughts. What felt like a struggle was, um, it's not that other people haven't had that experience, that kind of experience first of all, isn't typical. And each person's near-death experience is unique to them. So the fact that you went through that kind of struggle doesn't mean that everybody will, not not by a long shot. Other people have described something similar, but it's not the most common feature of a near-death experience. And also that uh, one of the things in your experience that fits with other near-death experiencers who chose to come back and sometimes were adamant about coming back is that I want to step back for a second and say, I have a former doctoral student, Roseanne Christian, and she, because of a project that we did over the course of several years, uh, for several years, she read everything that uh, was published in refereed journals, you know, academic journals about near-death experiences. And I asked her one time, I said, you know, there's this theme where people who choose to come back almost always do it out of empathic caring for a living person who needed them in physical life. And I asked her, can you remember a case where that wasn't the theme of somebody who who chose to come back? And she said, no. In other words, that is a virtue, if if not universal, practically universal theme, where like a mother who has a, a, a new baby and the father is off at sea and she's, you know, has this medical crisis. She's watching from above and and um, and she's told, you know, you can you can stay or you can go. And the moment she thinks about her baby and that if she doesn't go back, she, it's not like there's other she doesn't have other family. You know, no one will be there to take care of that baby. The moment she thinks of that, boom, she's back in her body. And in another case, a friend of mine named Linda Jackwin, and she's talked about this publicly so I can use her name, you know, without any problem. She had her near-death experience when she was five and she almost drowned. And it was her brother, who was just a couple years older than her, was supposed to be watching her and he wasn't. 
and she fell in the water and nearly drowned. Somebody saw it, pulled her out, they resuscitated her. She's out of her body. She's with another spiritual entity. I can't remember who it was, if it was a relative or like a spiritual like yours, you know, where you don't recognize them, doesn't really matter. This entity is telling her she has a choice about she can stay here or go back there. And in her case, it felt so good to be in the out-of-body place, you know, so freeing and she felt love and peace and just beyond anything she'd experienced in life. But while she was deciding this, she looked at her brother and she knew that if she didn't go back into her body, he would live with the guilt of her death for the rest of his life. And boom, she was back in her body. It's not like most people like have the empathy and then like you had the empathy and then you argued, argued, argued. A lot of people have the empathy and they're just back. Boom. So it from your face, it looked like that was kind of a discovery on your part to know that 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 is that is a thing in near death experiences to have that that moment you had with your mother and that you've spent your whole life protecting each other and then for you to be the source of her you know just disabling grief would just you couldn't abide it yeah no I haven't heard that that's why I was a bit like wow that's quite profound for me because it's exactly what happened to me and I've never I've never heard that either which also shows me that I mean, not that I doubt my own experience, but it just proves to me even more that it was genuine because I had no influence of that. Right. right. The first person that's actually just almost made sense of it for me and Mm. described what Mm -hmm. I not only experienced, but felt. And it was interesting Mm -hmm. because um, my mum said to me um, after not knowing any of this, Mm -hmm. I remember we were sat at a kitchen table in an old house that she lived in and she just like looked at me and and again to to give a bit of context we're not the most we um but you're English yeah (laughs) thank you that's the best way to describe it I was you knew I was trying to find the right word without you know being offensive you're reserved yeah yeah and I'm cultural thing I'm northern English which you know and yes so yes thank you that describes it perfectly I have three brothers and she adores them and loves them. Of course, we have this, it's different, it's special. Like, not only am I her firstborn, but like she got pregnant with me at 15 years old. So there's a lot around that, as you can imagine. We almost grew up together. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah, we actually did. And she said to me many times that I saved her life, Mm. which, you know, by, whereas I always felt like I was hindered her life because, yeah, a burden. Or she said, you saved my life. You actually Um, were purpose. Yeah, yeah, that's what she said. It gave her purpose, and yeah. and if she hadn't have had me, she'd have either died or been in prison. Wow. And then she said to me at the kitchen table, um, "I don't think I could have lived if you hadn't have survived." <laughs> so now you just said that to me. I just can't stop thinking about that moment. That that just matches what you experienced in your your uh, view of the funeral situation. You know, it just, it's yeah. the same theme that she was, she would have just been crushed. Yeah. And it's funny because I, all these pieces I've known, but it's only having a conversation with you that I've actually put them together. Mm-hmm. So thank you. You're welcome. 
Am I dead? There are two little boys standing behind death, already through my hospital room doorway and on the other side. They're very small and square with like old wrinkly gray skin and their hair is jet black, but kind of stiff and shaped like, I don't know, like a Lego piece. Not a strand is out of place. They are gesturing me to come with them, standing shoulder to shoulder as if they are twins joined at the hip. They look the same, sky blue tops, but I can't really see their legs. Don't look at them. They aren't nice boys, they are bad. I can't help it though, they're pulling me in. No, death is pulling me. Come with us, come with us. They chant, eerily quiet. I feel you, death, there you are. I know, I could feel you as soon as I moved to this side of the room. I'm close to the door now, it's open. I'm no longer lying on the hospital bed that homed my body. I'm to the center of the room, but stood bolt upright facing the right, looking through the doorway. My bed is on my left. We are face to face. This is just where you want me. You, me. Do I go with you? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I have a question for you. You said that after you survived, you experienced depression. So I'm going to ask this question, like on the surface, it would seem like you wanted so much to come back. You got to come back. Like what have you got to be depressed about? But I'm sure that there's an explanation that is going to come clear as soon as you open your mouth and (laughs) explain like what was your depression about? But that's exactly what the battle was. And that made it worse because Everybody said to me how, oh my gosh, how lucky you are to survive. And also um, what happened to me was public, so it was in the press. Uh So that made it, I mean, it was amazing because I had so much outpour of love, but at the same time it did add a bit of pressure to me because everywhere I went, everybody knew. Because Mm -hmm. um, at the time, because, and even now sometimes if I'm in the UK oh, you were the one that was critically ill. And because I was on TV a lot of the time and I was meant to be doing a show which I didn't mm-hmm. didn't do because mm-hmm. I was ill. So it was all in the newspapers and on television and some of my fellow colleagues were reporting on what was happening to me, which I know was very strange for them. Everybody kept saying to me, oh, you're so lucky to survive, um, which, and I don't mean this in a condescending way because I know everybody meant it out of love and was so appreciative, but then it made me feel really isolated because I... F- I know I was really lucky, but at the same time, like I felt distressed from what happened. And I also felt like, why am I feeling low and scared when I should be feeling amazing? So it compounded the depression because the more people said to me, oh, you're amazing and look at you, you look so well. And when I didn't feel well, so I didn't feel like myself anymore. And that's where I think the depression came from, where I felt like I just didn't know how I was anymore. Also, I'm very physical, so I use my physical body a lot. So I run, I 
train. I, I am, you know, love sports. I'm very, very physical. So all of a sudden, I couldn't be physical for the first time in my life. And I've always used my physical strength to help uh, combat my life, I suppose. And it's something yeah. that I've always been in control of. And I ran from a young age. Um, I used to run at a very high level as a teenager, and it it became the thing I always did. So all of a sudden that had gone. So I didn't know how to cope without using my physicalness and my right. physical ability. Then right. also I couldn't work. And so I felt like I was failing. Yeah. It was that conflict and it started to make me just feel like I had really low depressive feelings where I felt like I couldn't, or I, where I'd run out of energy as well. I think I'd fought so much that I was so emotionally drained and I also had a lot of flashbacks about what happened to me and a lot of nightmares. So that was keeping me awake and I couldn't sleep. And then that became a self-perpetuating um, cycle where mm -hmm. the consultant actually spotted it. He was like, you need to sleep. And I was like, mm -hmm. I can't, I'm having terrible nightmares. And that's how he then realized that I needed some mental health help. Mm -hmm. I could physically feel, and I can still sometimes now feel the um, incubator mm -hmm. and the machines on me. Mm -hmm. And and so sometimes when I fell asleep, I would wake up thinking I was still in the coma and couldn't breathe anymore. So there was a lot of post-distress, I suppose, around it, which was making me depressed and then conflicts about my own identity and why I survived and why that happened to me. Yeah. And also putting a horrific pressure on myself so, where so I felt like I'd lost my life. Exactly. I, you, you used the exact word that was in my mind too, is that you were facing a lot of losses. The loss of... Um, things that gave you meaning like your work, the loss of um, strategies that gave you a sense of uh, competence and like you said, control in life. I mean, we all need to feel some sense that we're, we have control over most of the things that happened and we know we don't, you know, ultimately, but still that we can mostly control and you lost that. As you say, you really lost your identity. I wonder whether you've experienced any specific changes in yourself that you attribute specifically to your near-death experience? Yeah. The answer might, oh, you do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I know exactly. So, um, yeah. And I really, and I'm conflicted with this because I, I, you know, I've heard people say, you know, I, I was living this life and now I'm not living this life anymore. I don't mm -hmm. feel like I was living a I feel like I've always had a really strong moral compass, mm -hmm. but I feel like I suffered from a lot of unresolved trauma that I refused to get help on. Mm -hmm. And um, I struggled with vulnerability and I struggled with intimate relationships and I struggled with opening up and I was very, very protective of myself, almost sometimes where I could come across as and this is hard for me still to say now, like, but sometimes like maybe a bit fierce. I don't think that's naturally who I am. A psychologist and, you know, as somebody who's very experienced yourself in, in um, counselling and, um, you know, the degree in masters you've done, you'll know that a psychologist, you know, taught me that actually was, I have to thank myself for that because that's actually the reason why I survived as a child. You know, so I had a lot of um, family conflict and family abuse. So from a very young age, I, I've always been like that. 
as far as I can remember, and always being very protective of myself. I remember I was in this psychology group and I was like, no, I don't feel anger. I never, I'm never angry. And it was because I fear anger, right? I was probably always angry underneath, but could never express it. So I couldn't identify those things and those things that I've learned. So going to your question, I feel like if that hadn't have happened to me, it almost stripped me raw and that's what I needed because I had so many layers of protection around me that I don't know what would have stripped me raw and I needed to be stripped raw to reprogram my brain to be able to deal with some of the abuse that I suffered when I was younger and allow myself to be vulnerable and not stay in that same state of um, hypervigilance every day because that's what I was in. And it served me very well in my career, I have to admit, because nothing really fazed me. You know, and I'm a, a woman who started in broadcast that was predominantly sport and mainly male. And and I almost fed off it because nothing ever was as worse as what I suffered when I was younger. Yeah, it's just really interesting talking to you because I'm not also normally this open. <laughs> so, like, again, that's a big thing for me because... Yeah, five years ago, if I had this conversation, I'd have been like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> would never have been so open. And that's what this yeah. did to me. So it changed me. It's made me, I can give so much more because I'm I'm nicer to myself. I'm happier. I have stronger and more real relationships. And I feel like I have the ability to love and to give and to accept love, which I don't think I had before. And that's all to do with my daily death experience, all of it. Wow. So, and you, it sounds like you can experience joy in a way that you didn't used to be able to. Yeah. How, how did your, if you could connect this for me, how did the, your near-death experience enable you to be more loving, to give and receive love more? Because it ultimately is the reason why I wanted to live. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. And And I think like, before I would try and shut that off because I didn't want to yeah, yeah. suffer any more pain. So I'd try and yeah. not emotionally connect to people. And I'd be quite transient in my relationships and friendships. Mm-hmm. And I moved a lot. It's hard for me to say, you know, I could easily just move from one person to another and it wouldn't really bother me. I was always at conflict with, and I was super hard on myself, like super hard. Nothing was ever good enough, huge perfectionist. Like now I'm a lot, I would never, like now I'm like allow myself praise and to feel good enough. So it sounds like um, that moment when you saw your mother crumbling at your funeral and you felt the love for her and the raw love, it's like you couldn't deny that anymore, that you have that deep connection and that that really is who you are at the core. Something just clicked. Yeah. I feel like I needed to feel that then, to be able to go and re- unravel. rebuild yourself with uh, different priorities. It's like the priorities all went and fell into a different, yeah. yeah, came together in a different order. If I could suggest the word serve. Yeah. To serve others rather than to try to repair some kind of void in yourself. It was a huge transformation, and like I do think, like it's allowed me to live. It it really had um, to do with your woundedness from your life and how you had yeah. developed ways to cope with that, to deal with it, to. Um, 
kind of master it, except you were out of touch with who you really were. And the near-death experience really helped you see who discover. I am. Yeah. And I feel like I know who I am, whereas yeah. I didn't before. I have no fight. I have no more fight in me. The pieces of my mum's heart, I can see them lifeless and turning black. No, 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 no. Feelings rush back in like a violent sea. The numbness evaporates. I scream in the dark face. I can see my mum's eyes staring back at me. Her eyes have no life. A thousand mile stare pierces straight through me. I've done this to her. How could I? I've never hurt her. All I've done is love her, protect her. I'm not like them. They hurt her. Now I'm the one who is ultimately destroying her. They could never quite do it. But I can. I'm worse than them. I'm the final killer of my mom. The final destroyer. It's too much. The pain is just too much. Not my pain, but the pain of my mom. I'm certain. I can't. There is no way I'm going anywhere. I'm not going to do this to her. My whole body fills up with a blazing ball of fire, its energy roaring up inside of me. The boys are gesturing faster and stronger for me to come, speaking in unison. Their voices are small but full of persuasion. I can feel you getting angry. You're growing bigger, but I'm matching your every inch. I am not leaving my mom. I can't do this to her. I'm staying. I have to stay alive for her. I never cried. Yeah. I, I cry, I've cried more since that happened to me than my entire life because I never cried. And even if I wanted to cry, it, something would just stop it. It wasn't even like my own decision. It was like something would just stop. And I can be very jovial as well to mask emotion. And like now I just recognize all these behaviors which I didn't before. And what the near-death experience allowed was it, yeah, it created that overpowering love which was always there but that was all that mattered in that moment nothing else did which makes me think about the decisions I make in my life now I often go back to that a lot in my decision making it's like a touchstone yeah but it also got rid of the layers of steel Mm -hmm. to allow me Mm -hmm. to go there I don't know what it would have taken yeah other than that so yeah. yeah Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> that's my I, experience. Yeah. Let me offer another perspective that, that may or may not resonate with you. But, you know, going back to the, the dark mass and every time you would say no, you know, I don't want to go on. And it would say, yes, you will. And you'd say, no, I won't. And it would say, yes, you will. It on the surface, it can sound like it was opposing you. But maybe what it was doing was rallying the force that you needed to have of you know that you would live to be there for your mother and all the other things that you you know all the other reasons and that it actually did you a a favor by opposing you because if it had said yes you'll come with me and say no, I, I'm not going to. And it went, okay, you might not have like had the, I don't know, just the force of will 
to do everything you've done since then about um, you know rethinking your life and reorganizing your priorities and facing the disintegration and reintegration of yourself in a different form. Yeah. Just something to think no, about. No, I think I never thought of it like that. If I hadn't opposed me, then I wouldn't have had that moment where I had that overwhelming power no. of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. I always yeah. thought, well, that was trying to, that me, that was trying to take me, you know, but maybe it actually wasn't. And maybe, maybe it was to create that experience for me that I needed to. Yeah. Huh. Maybe at some level it had the wisdom that it knew that if it if it opposed you in this way, it would help you come back and live the life that you had the potential to live and that you were meant to live. Yeah. I quite like looking at it like that because then that makes more sense to me and less it's less scary it's less conflicting mm-hmm. and actually makes probably more sense mm-hmm. because that wouldn't have without that opposition it wouldn't have created that force at all which then yeah. wouldn't have been the same experience which probably wouldn't have led to the transformation mm-hmm. oh my god Jan you've just like <laughs> where, have you, where have you been for, I could have should have contacted you five years ago <laughs> I'm like right it's solved end uh, end that's it over and out <laughs> yeah um, I, I hear wow, you wow wow I never thought of it same, like that at all and at the same time you may have needed this time to kind of get your stuff together enough to be able to have this conversation at this level yeah and so, yeah yeah because yeah, it was not like a miraculous overnight transformation. No. It was a journey that I had to go on to peel the many layers. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, because I probably wouldn't have been able to speak about it this openly. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've just had a, a profound, like, some kind of counseling session with you, so I'm very grateful. <laughs> so thank you. And I definitely didn't expect that, so... Wow, thank you very much. My mind clears. All of my doubt disappears. What was I thinking? I speak clearly and firmly with no emotion, no fear, no distress. I need to be there for my mum. I need to make sure my brothers are okay. My mum, no. My mum, no. I keep repeating to drown you out. Your darkness swallows me. I'm inside of you. The boys have gone. I can feel your mass tight around, constricting like a snake. It's as if you're going to implode and with it, take me. You win. I lose. I'm not going to lose this time. No, leave me alone, I shout. I'm deteriorating and fast. I'm drifting. You are winning. I'm shrinking. You are swallowing me up whole. Bang. Gone. Nothing. Am I dead? Everything is perfectly clear and luminous. I'm all alone. You've gone. But where am I? I've no idea. Nothing. The pain of loving you, Mum. I'm aggressively resuscitated and I'm brought back to life. There's some philosopher, theologian type scholars who say the fact that near death experiences are different 
in different parts of the world shows that there can't be an afterlife because uh, why would there be different afterlife for different people? Which I think is, is a very easily dealt with argument because why is there such different lives for everybody in this life? You know, like. That's coming up next on the final episode of Died and Survived, Learning to Leave. Thanks so much for taking this journey with us. Died and Survived is hosted and produced by me, Charlie Webster, alongside my dear friend, Paul Woods-Turley, with research and production support from Jill Hoffman and Kyle Epler. Recording by Stephen Sletton, edited and sound designed by Aaron Florence. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group. <laughs>